0: Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app.
1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall.
1: And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition.
2: Tonight, Staggering losses. 16 members of his family were killed, but our guest says he still hopes international pressure can end Israel's military attacks, which authorities in Gaza say have now taken more than 10,000 lives.
1: Stamp of approval. A new Canadian stamp will honor Mona Parsons, a Nova Scotian who joined the Dutch resistance, got caught, and spent four years in a Nazi prison before escaping.
2: Hostile witness at the civil fraud trial against him in New York, Donald Trump goes on the offensive, calling the judge biased and the attorney general a political hack.
1: Re-zoned after a month's long effort, a huge encampment on the streets of Phoenix, Arizona, known as The Zone, has been carefully cleared. But one outreach worker says the roots of the problem remain.
2: Getting the show on the country roads, North Americans are surprised to hear a stadium full of German NFL fans belting out a John Denver classic. They gave the mountain mama of all performances.
1: And a new fleece on life. (laughs) No one knows how she got there, but after at least two years, Britain's loneliest and probably wooliest sheep has been rescued from the base of a cliff in Scotland. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that never misses a bleat. Today, there are staggering new numbers out of Gaza. The Hamas-run health ministry there says the death toll since October 7th has now surpassed 10,000 people. It says more than 4,000 of the dead are children. That announcement comes amid calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire from top UN officials and humanitarian organizations. But Israel's prime minister has said that won't happen unless Hamas returns the hostages. Tamar Jarada is a Palestinian living in Calgary. We reached him there.
2: Tamar grief is difficult but different for everyone, and that's under you know circumstances very different than what you and your family are dealing with right now. So, how are you managing today?
3: Or managing today, we are really hurting and frustrated about uh, what has been happening in the Gaza Strip. We have reached a point where we are just waiting and afraid to hear more news about our families uh, and loved ones there
2: who have you lost
3: i lost 16 members of my uh, family including my uh, father mother two sisters and two orphan nephews who lost their dad six years ago
2: where were they living
3: so they had to leave their place because uh, Their neighborhood was uh, heavily bombed at that point. 19 family members took refuge in my own three-bedroom apartment in Gaza City. And uh, on the morning of October 25th, I was uh, getting the kids ready for school. When I read in Telegram that um, Israeli strike wiped out the entire block where my family took
2: refuge. I'm so sorry for your loss, Tamar. Uh What do you say to your own children? I don't know how old they are, but how, what do you say to them?
3: It's so hard. Uh, they are eight and five years old. We were there in Gaza uh, two months ago, mm-hmm. and they made a lot of memory with, uh, with our family there. They also uh, saw them two years ago, so they made a lot of bonds with uh, lost family members. So we are trying our best to introduce what happened to them uh, gradually.
2: That trip, what was that like for you? And was there any, you know, how were people feeling at that time?
3: It was a very, very good trip for uh, for all of us here. Gaza uh, was uh, more than what uh, people currently see in the news. It's a place of love family bonds that withstand adversity, cherished memories, laughter, unbreakable brotherhood and sisterhood, dreams that defy the odds, treasured childhoods, great cuisine, joyful weddings, a thirst for education, unwavering resistance and uh, remarkable Remarkable spirit of resilience.
2: What were some of the dreams, you know, that people you lost had?
3: My sister Nusreen was uh, 29 years old, who had just completed her master's degree in clinical psychology and was preparing for her upcoming wedding this month. My father, nasr Jarada, aged 67, he dedicated his entire life to providing for our family. He was a father of six. He and my mother Nema came to visit 6 years ago, and I still remember um me and my father just um sitting on his bed and him telling me that uh, Tamer this was the the first time ever in my life that I took some time off. Um, He was my role model. My mother, Naima Jarada, aged 54, was a devoted uh, homemaker who selflessly supported our family throughout her life.
2: You work at the University of Calgary, I know, Tamar. uh, Since this horrible news for your family, How have people been responding?
3: I have mixed feelings about that. My team, I got got full support from my team. But unfortunately, from the wider university community, I haven't heard from anyone, even though it was in the news that I lost 16 members of my family. I have been a university member for 12 years now. And I honestly feel that uh, I was let down uh, when the tragedy happened in, on October seventh. We got an email from the university administration right after what happened. Why didn't I even get an email from the university administration just? Um,
2: How do you answer that question in your mind?
3: Well. I just consider it as a form of discrimination um, discrimination in all of in all its forms is not acceptable for me and in contradiction to our Canadian values.
2: The leaders of of several UN agencies, signed on to a joint statement saying, quote, an entire population is besieged and under attack, denied access to the essentials for survival, bombed in their homes, shelters, hospitals, and places of worship. This is unacceptable. We need an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. It's been 30 days. Enough is enough. This must stop now. End quote. What does that joint statement and those words mean to you? Do you feel that, that there is a shift happening now internationally?
3: I hope that there's a shift that's happening internationally, but to be honest, I don't see anything happening. Unless politicians around the world decide to do something about what's what has been happening in the Gaza Strip, nothing will happen. Uh, I would say advocating for justice for Palestinians is a call to to address a wide range of historical, political, and humanitarian issues. It's a statement that highlights the need for fairness, equity, and respect for the rights and dignity of the Palestinian people. We have the right to take to the streets and call upon the government and politicians to push for ceasefire and denounce and condemn the acts of collective banishment and ethnic cleansing happening in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank.
2: I wonder, as we talk about the loss in your in your family, who do you have left? Have you been able to reach them?
3: I still have a sister in Gaza who is married and has uh, three kids. Communications were lost two days ago with the Gaza Strip. Uh, since then, I haven't been able to know if she and her family are, are safe. It's, it's painful. It's fun.
2: Tamer, I appreciate your time. Please take care.
1: Thank you so much for having me. That was Tamir Jarada, a Palestinian-Canadian in Calgary. Donald Trump goes. There's a display of verbal fireworks. And today as he took the stand at his civil fraud trial in New York, it was no exception. The former president clashed with the judge who scolded Mr. Trump for not answering questions and threatened to throw him out. And as he left the courthouse, his combativeness continued. I think it went very well. I think you were there and you listened and you see what scam this is.
4: This is a case that should have never been brought. It's a case that should be dismissed
5: immediately. The fraud was on behalf of the court. And I think you saw what I had to say today, and
1: it was very conclusive. Everything we did was absolutely right. New York Attorney General Letitia James had a very different take on the day's proceedings.
0: He rambled. He hurled insults. But we expected that. At the end of the day, the documentary evidence demonstrated that, in fact, he falsely inflated his assets to basically enrich himself and his family. He continued to persistently engage in fraud.
1: Joyce White Vance is a former federal prosecutor. We reached her in Birmingham, Alabama.
2: Joyce, let's start with what Donald Trump said first in those clips. He thinks clearly that it went very well for him, but did it?
6: You know, it really didn't, because what happened today was that Trump acknowledged the presence of his signature, his personal guarantee on financial statements that were meant to convince banks to loan money to the Trump organization. And those documents contained fraudulent information on them. So Trump, in essence, confessed to fraud today. And that's important, because even though the judge has already entered judgment in the state's favor on the fraud charges, Trump's lawyers had hoped to successfully appeal that decision. All he did today was make the attorney general's case stronger.
2: Let's talk about Letitia James. We heard from her there as well. She says this is about the documents and the numbers. So based on what you heard today, but based on what she's presented and is presenting, do you think she has all of the evidence she needs? You know, she does. And she has repeatedly made the point that the
6: numbers don't lie. And so, in part because the judge has already ruled in her favor, the judge has already found that there was fraud, but also because this is a bench trial where the judge is making decisions about which facts are are accurate, decisions that are normally reserved for a jury. She's in a very strong position, both in the trial case, where the judge will now have to award damages,
2: but also on appeal. Today was a big day, certainly with Trump's testimony, but Wednesday... His daughter, Ivanka, is slated to take the stand. What are you going to be watching and listening for on that day? Yes, this
6: is fascinating. Ivanka Trump has not been deposed. That means that the attorney general probably doesn't know for certain what she'll say on the witness stand. And there's a a rule that prosecutors follow, and that rule is to never ask a question at trial if you don't know what the answer is. It's a very risky thing to do. So we'll have to wait and see what information the attorney general expects to elicit from Ivanka that's so important that it's worth running this risk. Because she could in many ways be unpredictable, but they clearly believe something that she will say on the witness stand is very valuable to
2: them. Well, Based on on what Letitia James has said and done before, is she one to, to take a risk like that if she doesn't think it's going to pay off? She's not. She's not a gambler. She's a hard worker. She believes in being
6: prepared. So I expect that there's a a deliberate strategy here.
2: The judge in this case has taken Donald Trump to to task, including today, saying, quote, this is not a political rally, end quote. But Donald Trump seems to be, as we've heard, you know, in those clips, uh, he seems to be treating it like one. How successful is that? How is that playing outside of the trial to use this? however badly it's going for him, as you've said, inside, to use this as a campaign tool.
6: Right. So the judge has been extraordinarily patient with Trump in in ways, frankly, that a judge would not tolerate similar behavior from another party to a lawsuit. And I think to some extent, at least, that's fueled by this judge's understanding that Trump observes in the courtroom and then goes outside of the courtroom and campaigns on what has happened there. He uses the fact that he's being um, pursued by the attorney general to raise money. It is a very difficult, unprecedented situation to be in. Trump is clearly having some success with his base. There are people who will always believe him, no matter how clearly untrue what he says is. There are some people who simply like his worldview and support him for that reason. I think the hope here has to be that over time, people will have the opportunity to see the truth because of the way that the attorney general and the judge are both handling the case. The reality is, though, that Trump continues to be very successful in pulling the wool over people's eyes.
2: A New York Times-Siena poll just this weekend put Trump ahead of Biden, despite all of the legal troubles, not just this particular case. But If he loses this case, do you think that might make a difference in terms of his campaign and his reputation? Well, look, I'm
6: not a political pollster, nor am I a country lawyer, but I think polls this far out are always fraught and maybe not indicative of of where the public really is but one has to hope that american voters will educate themselves before they go to the polls in 2024 i think sometimes we're very cavalier about the intelligence and the smarts that american voters bring to the political process i remain eternally optimistic that people will make an assessment in the coming election about the direction they want to see the country go in and whether democracy continues to matter in america I think this case and the criminal prosecutions will have an important impact on the electorate.
2: We've covered some of the different cases that Donald Trump is facing in court. Where would you put this one in terms of significance?
6: So to Trump himself, this is clearly a significant case because he values his reputation as a businessman. And this case, frankly, tarnishes, if not destroys it. It's very clear that Trump was never a smart businessman who made a lot of money. Instead, he was just a garden variety fraudster who took advantage of people. Personally, I think that's damaging to him, and people who've supported him because he, they believe that he's successful and he can help them come to success may take a second look at that question after seeing the result in this case.
2: Joyce, thank you.
6: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Joyce White Vance is a former federal prosecutor. She's in Birmingham, Alabama. When she was first spotted two years ago by a kayaker, Fiona was alone, windswept and unkempt at the base of a cliff in the Scottish Highlands, which sounds like something out of a gothic romance novel, except that Fiona was obviously in some distress since she seemed to be stuck. And also Fiona is a sheep. Then last month, the same kayaker, kayaking past the same spot, caught sight of Fiona once again, this time with a much larger, thicker fleece. This time she took a photo and let people know. The Wayward Ewe became national news in the UK, where she was dubbed Britain's Loneliest Sheep, and all that attention prompted a rescue operation. Graham Parker was part of the rescue team. We reached him in Wigtown, Scotland.
2: Graham, this was not an easy rescue operation. What made it so complex?
1: So,
5: this was on a remote coastline in the very north highlands of Scotland. Um, the, the sheep, who is now called Fiona, was at the bottom of around the six hundred and thirty foot cliff, the seashore itself was extremely rugged, so the coast guard and people have refused to um, actually access the beach and be able to extract her themselves.
2: so w- what were the logistics involved? How many people, how many hours? how did you get her up
5: um so surprisingly quickly actually, yeah. and this story first broke around a month ago, and then uh because she'd been in the news so much, the farmer um wrongly, people assumed that the farmer wasn't doing anything about it. But in reality, the farmer couldn't ask anybody to go down there because of the risk of life. Right. A friend of mine called on Thursday afternoon and by Friday evening, we were eight hours from my home. Uh, there were five of us in total and we kind of hatched a plan.
2: But how did you do it? You didn't just walk down there and, and
5: walk with her up, right? <laughs> we didn't just walk down there, not quite. I wish I wish we could have. First, we were going to use a jet ski with a rib attached to the backs. Uh-huh. It was soon apparent that we couldn't do that. So we had an all-terrain buggy, and we bought a couple of huge long ropes, attached them to the winch of the buggy, and then we um, we climbed down, the three of us. It wasn't too treacherous on the way down. It's the kind of thing we've done probably as kids when we shouldn't have done. Uh, <laughs> I must admit, Kami uh, Wilson, who kind of headed the team, he is fearful of heights, so he had a few kind of scary moments uh, on his way down. But Yeah, but that cliff is recently.
2: not for the faint of heart, certainly. So you make it down, and how did Fiona receive you?
5: Well, luckily, there is a tunnel system of caves on that cove, so we knew roughly where we thought we would find her. And when we got down there, sure enough, Fiona was in the cave itself stood right in the middle of the cave in a little patch of sunlight that was coming through a craggy hole in the ceiling <laughs> of the cave. And uh luckily she just backed away gently and didn't take an alternative route. And as soon as we grabbed her, she calmed right down. That so image you paint
2: of her standing in the light, it made me th- like any smart diva, she knows. Find the light.
5: Find the light. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Once we caught her, um it was a case of getting her out of the cave and then back up the 700 foot or so uh, cliff face and hillside. The ropes we got weren't quite long enough, so it was uh, it was a, a huge amount of effort for the first 100, 150 feet. And then after that, we were able to actually put her into effectively a huge hammock um, and tie that uh, to a rope and then guide her safely up the hillside.
2: I'm glad you're all safe and doing okay. But I have to ask, I mean, has anyone asked her? Maybe she, she liked being down there alone. Maybe she liked this solitary life.
5: Maybe she did. Maybe she did. But I've told a couple of people this, and it it sounds like it could be almost uh, fabricated. But when you saw her, we were completely and utterly blown away by how calm and relaxed she was. and It was almost as if she was relieved just to get out of there. The the next day when we had her back at the farm, she was just casually walking in between uh, us, and she loved it.
2: How did she get down there in the first place? She just went rogue?
5: So we think that as a lamb, she wandered partly down the hill and then must have fallen the rest of the way. And obviously it's easier to get down somewhere with the help of gravity. Not quite so easy as we found it um, to get back up.
2: She hasn't gone back, though, to, to live, if I'm not mistaken, with the farmer. She's at the Dalscon Farm in, in Scotland. And some activists yep. are concerned, as as you may have heard, because that's a petting zoo. So why was that chosen as the place Fiona would go?
5: So when you say the term petting zoo, it's slightly different here in Mm -hmm. Scotland. So it's effectively a farm where people can go and visit the animals, but they, they don't sort of go in amongst the animals. We picked Dilscon because we know the person who owns Dilscon. It is a long way from where Fiona was originally found. But Dilscon itself is in the public limelight, and we needed her to go somewhere that people would know that she was safe and well. But unfortunately... The activists, I think they were slightly upset that we'd managed to get her up the hill and to, to take her away because they hoped to take her to their own sanctuary.
2: So she, she's she's settling in. She's had a haircut, I believe.
5: She looks incredible. She, so we <laughs> we clipped her the next day because it was really important to get the, the wool off of her. And then we got her down to Dalscon and she is by herself. And then she'll be gradually integrated into farm life down there. But nobody will see her, no general public will see her for the next five, nearly six months, and then she will get a little bit of limelight when she's ready for it.
2: Well, she'll find that light, I'm sure of that. Graham, thank
5: you. (laughs) You're welcome. It's been nice speaking to you.
2: Likewise.
1: That was Graham Parker, one of the five people who rescued Fiona, the stranded sheep from the Scottish coast. We reached him in Wigtown, Scotland. Life is old there, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. The lyrics to John Denver's immortal classic, Take Me Home, Country Roads. You may be wondering how life can be younger than mountains, but older than trees. You might also wonder how a life that's younger than old things, but older than things that are younger than the old things, could be growing like a breeze when life doesn't grow like wind at all, no matter where you are. But to two groups of people, those lyrics make primal emotional sense. The first group, West Virginians. The second, Germans. Now, obviously, West Virginians would relate to a song that describes their home state as almost heaven, but why would Germans? Well, no one knows for sure, but we do know for sure that they do relate, as they proved again yesterday when the Kansas City Chiefs and the Miami Dolphins played an NFL game in Frankfurt, Germany. capacity crowd at Frankfurt's Deutsche Bank Park yesterday belting out Take Me Home Country Roads during a football game, part of the NFL's international series. Now, who can say why those German fans are so moved by the idea of having a mountain mama and living within her, which I guess is what happens in the song. Who can say why people nearly 7,000 kilometers away from West Virginia yearn for the misty taste of moonshine and get a teardrop in their eye? Those aren't rhetorical questions. Seriously, who who can say? If you can, please let us know. How did a Canadian woman from rural Nova Scotia end up in a Nazi prison camp? The story of how Mona Parsons wound up a prisoner during the Second World War is dramatic, so much so that it became a heritage minute starring Sonia Smiths. Here's the moment when she manages to escape to the Netherlands and is recognized by an old Canadian friend.
7: No, no, no. I'm telling you, I was in a German prison camp for
4: four years. What's going
8: on here, Sergeant? I claim she's a Canadian, sir, but she could be a German spy. What's your name, lady?
4: Mona Parsons.
8: Mona Parsons? From Wolfville.
4: It's me, Harry Foster. God, what happened to you? I was in the resistance. The Gestapo got me.
1: Now, Mona Parsons is being honoured by Canada Post with a Remembrance Day stamp. Her full story was first documented by author Andrea Hale-Lair. We reached her at the Wolfville Post Office.
2: Andrea, you've always wanted Canadians to know about Mona Parsons. You wrote the book about her. So how does it feel to, to see this recognition, to see her on a Canadian stamp?
0: Well, to quote Mona in a letter she concluded on May 5th, 1945, upon hearing the news that uh, the Nazis had uh, capitulated, she wrote, the joy is almost too much to bear. And I have to tell you, driving along Main Street and turning into the Wolf Hill Post Office today, when I saw the grounds and what they've done here, I actually cried, which is what I'm doing right now. (laughs) Very emotional.
2: So you want Canadians to... To to remember certainly, and how I, is she being? Absolutely, how is she being remembered? When you pulled in, you said you, what they've done there. Describe for our listeners what you've seen.
0: Well, the the front lawn of the post office, uh, in directly in front of the building, there's a large uh, marquee. There's a stage set up. There are tables and chairs, and. Uh, right next to that is the is the war memorial. But across the driveway is the sculpture that was uh, erected and dedicated to Mona Parsons, and it is called "The Joy Is Almost Too Much to Bear." That was created by Nistel Prem De Boer, who is a Dutch Canadian sculptor. And the, and there's a there's a a curtain up over part of the Wolfville post office wall, and behind that will be a permanent plaque, big permanent plaque to commemorate the stamp, uh, the stamp, but most importantly to commemorate the story of Mona Parsons.
2: And what does that uh, what, stamp look like?
0: Uh, the stamp is a portrait of her that was taken in uh, approximately 1920 when she uh, graduated from the Academy Ladies Seminary, and then there are watermarks behind it, uh, the North Nobis who were the uh, the people that she first came across three weeks after she'd escaped from uh, the Veshka prison in Germany and uh, had walked across Germany, posing as a mentally challenged woman with a cleft palate so that she could understand German, but she didn't dare risk speaking it because she had a Canadian accent.
2: Everything you've said, you know, there's certainly tenacity there, passion. She had studied acting, that a little bit of what you've described there. That certainly helped her out in those moments, didn't they?
0: Yes, it certainly did. Um, when when she and Wendelin, who, who was a 22-year-old baroness with whom she escaped in March 1945, when they found themselves finally free of the prison, and then they were faced with the prospect of, well, what do we do now? And Wendelin, who knew the area, spoke German among her five languages, said, I can get us back to the Dutch border. And Mona said, well, what am I going to do? And they came up with they hatched the plan that she would pose as a mentally challenged woman with a cleft palate, so that she would be able to navigate and understand what was said to her, but she wouldn't be able to risk speaking it. And so they worked their way across uh, Germany in the dying days of, of the first Second World War, uh, trading their labor uh, for room and board to get their way across. And they, they were nearly captured a couple of times. They were nearly, uh, they were stopped by officials who wanted to see papers. Uh, Wendelin was very quick thinking and Mona was a superb actor. But at the border, they were separated during a bombardment uh, by the Canadians and the Polish army. And, um, they, she and Wendelin became separated and Mona had to push across into Dutch territory with the mm-hmm. family, the German farming family with whom she billeted. And when she realized she was back in Dutch territory, she, she just, she, she tried to remember all her Dutch and she finally communicated that she was uh, Canadian. She needed to get word to her father in Nova Scotia that she was still alive. And they were so delighted that you know, with what the Canadians had been doing in the hunger winter of 1944-45 that they took her to a clearing station, and now here's a woman. She weighed 87 pounds. She stood five foot eight. She weighed 87 pounds, and she had missing teeth. She was filthy. She was bedraggled. This woman who had been a socialite pulled together all the composure she could muster and approached a soldier who was loading a truck and said, I need to get word to my father, I'm a Canadian. And he looked at her with suspicion and said, "Um, so if you're from Canada, where are you from? And she said, I'm from a little town in Nova Scotia called Wolfville. And he swore softly and nearly dropped the box he was holding and said, my name is Clarence Leonard and we are the North Nova Scotia Highlanders. Mm-hmm. And and a remarkable story. You no. couldn't write that in a film and have people no. believe it. And, and I'm delighted today that uh, the son of Clarence Leonard is going to be joining us for the unveiling.
5: Oh.
2: How did Mona Parsons become involved in the resistance in the first place?
0: In 1937, she met a Dutch businessman called Willem Leonhardt. There was a whirlwind romance, quick trip to Nova Scotia to introduce him to her family, quick trip to the Netherlands to introduce her to his, and they married on the 1st of September, 1937. And uh, so when the Netherlands fell to the Nazis in May 1940, the, you know, Mona and Willem joined hundreds, if not thousands, of other Dutch people uh, who absolutely uh, enraged at the occupation and decided to do whatever they could to resist the Nazis. So their part was using their home as a stopping place for Allied airmen who had been shot down over, over the Netherlands. Uh, circulating through a network waiting for forged identity papers and forged ration cards and clothing to work them across the country over to the coastal communities where they would be loaded on fishing boats and taken out into the North Sea to rendezvous with British uh, submarines. Mm-hmm. And so they did that for over a year. But of course, you know, the Nazis started to get wise at which point her husband said, this is enough, we've we got to go into hiding. And Mona said, well, you go, but I've got the dogs and I'm not leaving them. And besides, it looks less suspicious if I stay here.
2: But eventually she, she was caught and then she's facing a death sentence but, initially. Yep. But she yep. talks her way out of it in a way. Can you describe that for our listeners? <laughs>
0: Well, she was one of the first and few women to be tried by a military tribunal, a Nazi military tribunal in the Netherlands. Um, And because she received her death sentence with such calm and dignity, the head of the tribunal approached her afterwards and and said that they would agree to uh, let her appeal, which she did. The sentence was commuted to life uh, in hard labor, and she was transported to the Anrat Penitentiary in Germany. So she uh, spent uh, until September of 1944 when she was moved to a place called Wiedenbrück, which was a labor camp. And then in January of 1945, she was moved to Vechta, And it was from Vechta that she escaped on March uh, March 24th, 1945.
2: Andrea, thank you for your time. I'm glad we could speak.
0: I'm so glad. Thank you, Neil. It's just lovely to hear your voice and be able to, to talk back to you.
2: <laughs> Take care. Thank you. <laughs> you too. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.
1: Andrea Hill Lair is the author of a book about Mona Parsons. She's in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Sawyer Nicholson has done a lot of celebrating lately. Last week, she celebrated her 12th birthday and last month, the Stouffville, Ontario residents celebrated after running a 5K in Niagara Falls in 17 minutes and 28.1 seconds. That is a world record for her age group, but not everyone thinks that that's cause for a party. A recent Toronto star article detailed some criticism of that achievement and others from people who say that someone her age shouldn't be running that much and who expressed concerns about pressure and burnout. Sawyer addressed those criticisms in an interview with the CBC this morning, and she talked about that record breaking run.
9: Um, it feels really crazy. I never thought I could do this, maybe like two months ago. I didn't even think I could break 18 minutes.
8: (laughs) How did you start running?
9: Um, I started. Back in 2020, so when COVID hit, since I played soccer, it all shut down. So my coach told me to stay in shape. So since my dad was a runner, he started taking me on, like, 1K runs, like, pretty slowly. He would run beside me. And then maybe after, like, two months, he made it, we'd increase it by maybe 500 meters and keep doing that until I was running 3K almost every day. So that's how.
8: That's was. all pretty amazing. And when you set the world record, who told you you'd set the world record?
9: Well, we didn't think I'd set it at first because it said that my time was 1729. But then, Canadian running. Um, so my dad brought me down to the office at during school and I was like, oh my gosh, am I in trouble? But then but then I found out that, but then I went on call with them. And then they are like, have you heard the news? And I was like, what are you talking about? And then they were like, you set the world record by like 0.2 milliseconds.
8: You found out at school, just like in the office? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Who runs faster now, you or your dad?
9: Is that even a question? Yes, it is. (laughs) Um, I bet you
8: your dad's (laughs) running faster because of how fast you run.
9: Oh, he bikes. Yeah, he bikes beside me.
8: Okay.
9: Uh, yeah, he stopped running maybe like a year ago.
8: Because he just can't keep up with you?
9: Yeah.
8: That is amazing. Do you hear some... What do you think of when you hear other people talking about should young girls be running this much? What do you think about when you hear that? Do you ignore it? Do you? What do you think?
9: Well, personally, I don't really care what they say. Yeah. But I do think... It's a bit crazy because if, like, a boy were to do, Mm -hmm. a boy were to run, say, a boy is to do a 5K how I did it and did something really good, people would just be looking and be like, oh my God, that's so fast, and wouldn't really care that they're doing that long of a distance. But as soon as a girl does something, it's just, everyone has something to say and worries about whether I'm healthy or not.
1: That was 12-year-old runner Sawyer Nicholson speaking with the CBC's David Common on Metro Morning today. They called it The Zone. At its peak, about a 1,000 people lived there in tents, makeshift shelters, and on the streets of an area near downtown Phoenix, Arizona, making it one of the largest encampments of its kind in North America. Now, The Zone is empty. Over the past few days, the last of its inhabitants left. The city spent months on the court-ordered process of clearing the streets. Neil first talked to Amy Schwabenlender in May when that process began. She's the director of Human Services Campus, a collective of groups working with unhoused people in the county. We reached her again today in Phoenix.
2: Amy, can you describe for our listeners what the zone looks like now compared to when we when we spoke about six months ago?
10: The area around us uh, known as the zone looks the complete opposite, where there were hundreds and hundreds of people living on top of each other in tents and Handmade structures using all sorts of materials. Now the the sidewalks are visible. the The dirt, some of the landscaping that was there, is visible. There are no tents, no structures, uh, temporary or semi-permanent, attached to mm-hmm. anything. The posts and chains that had been installed are removed. That were th- were put up at the beginning of the COVID pandemic to keep people from lingering in them. All the posts and chains have been removed and what's new is that signs have been posted to alert people that that area is all off limits Mm -hmm. from camping. There are signs that say uh, to abate the public nuisance basically of homelessness.
2: When you you see those signs and when you look at it now, how does that sit with you? How are you feeling about it?
10: I have a lot of different feelings. Mm -hmm. It's strangely eerie and that there aren't the same number of people around and while the the way people were living is not healthy, it's almost disturbing that all of a sudden hundreds of people are no longer here. And the signs I think, you know, bother a lot of people. It came out of the lawsuit, language itself that this human issue of being unhoused is labeled a public nuisance so this it feels a little bit like being stabbed in the side every time i see it
2: this was this was the lawsuit we spoke to you about back in may that uh, local mm-hmm. businesses uh, ha- had ha- that was a step local businesses had taken to to try to get some change there uh, where has everyone gone because obviously the problem of homelessness has not suddenly been solved so where is everyone now
5: mm-hmm the
10: city has worked on creating more indoor opportunities they could speak more you know explicitly as to the details of how many units and where there are there are beds that have been added in emergency shelter spaces there are motels that are being leased to have non congregate settings and there's a campground that has started to open up and and phasing in numbers of people that will be allowed to camp in a designated
2: space. Is there a moment throughout this process that you want our listeners to know about to illustrate what this process has been like?
10: I don't know that there's one mm-hmm. moment. It's just a very surreal thing. So it gave some people an opportunity that they hadn't realized they they had an opportunity to go somewhere else mm-hmm. and be inside and be in a shelter. And then they're are other people who really formed their own bonds and their own sort of community in this outdoor space. And now people have been relocated to different places. And I, I, you know, I'm only guessing because I, I can't relate to the feeling of it, mm-hmm. but suddenly though, like their, their sense of community has been pulled away from them. And A lot of people who are unhoused become very untrusting Mm -hmm. of systems and people who offer help because it doesn't always come to be and it doesn't always have the follow-through that that any of us would really like and appreciate. And so I think that's where the uncertainty comes from is just they're they're really having to put themselves into position where they blindly trust people who show up one day and say, we want to help you.
2: Do you feel, you know, based on, on the work you've done, but also what you've seen uh, over all of these months, do you feel that that they're putting their trust in a good place, that there will be follow-through this time, or do you feel this is a Band-Aid solution and we're going to see this come up again, this kind of place become yeah. a gathering place?
10: Um, I don't... I, well, this, to the end of your question, I don't think this area will be able to return to that level of unsheltered and camping again Mm -hmm. and none of us really wanted that right that was Mm -hmm. never the desire to say oh it's okay to live here on the sidewalk I'd like to be optimistic and believe that the urgency that was created can be leveraged to find longer-term solutions I want to have that optimism
2: but there's a but it sounds like in your voice
10: (laughs) There's always a hesitation because I've I've been doing this work for a long time, and there are there have been um, efforts that create urgency around a subset of the total homeless population, and the community rallies, and we do things and we implement them, and then they tend to be very short-term, one-off solutions. And for me, I'm always looking for and asking, advocating for and wanting to. Me- wanting to be part of the systems change that makes it so that we can't return to that level of homelessness again, that we actually look at why are people being evicted and why are people being discharged from healthcare settings and correction settings into homelessness. And in some regards, I, I feel like we shouldn't be surprised that this happened here, given what we knew about population growth and the the construction rate of housing and and how much was housing costing, yet here we are. So I hope other cities take the moment to really look at what they know about those dynamics in their community and start addressing the the problems and coming up with solutions
2: now. It's predictable and preventable, you're saying? Yes, ma'am. Amy, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Amy Schwabenlender is the director of Human Services Campus in Phoenix, Arizona. residential tower, a furniture store, a bridal salon, a market, just a few of the sites Zarina Zabrisky describes in one of her most recent videos out of Kherson, all of them damaged by Russian shelling. Ms. Zabrisky is a writer and journalist, and these days she's one of just two foreign correspondents stationed in the city on the front line of Russia's war on Ukraine. She says that in recent weeks, attacks on the region have been intensifying, and they're not limited to the battlefront either. Just last night, the Museum of Fine Arts in Odessa was damaged by a Russian airstrike on the eve of its 124th anniversary. We reached Zarina Zabrisky in Kherson.
2: Zarina, as you well know, it has been more than 600 days now, 620 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. So what does a typical day in Kherson look like now?
11: It is a very unusual day indeed. Um, You wouldn't even know when the day starts uh, because all through the night there are sounds of of explosions and sirens. Um, A lot of people sleep through these signals, through these sounds. I do too by now, and it kind of becomes a part of your dream. Mm -hmm. Uh, But typically, if the explosion is very close to your house, your bed jumps up and your walls tremble. So you do wake up. And if you do, you go to the hallway. So you are away from the windows or balconies or anything with the glass. Then Mm -hmm. when you wake up and get up, uh, sirens and explosions continue. And you might look at the chats or the telegram channels to check what kind of damage happened in your area all throughout the city
2: and in in nearby towns and cities it's even worse in some uh, cases
11: yes some districts in Kherson are worse than others the ones by the river are closer uh, to the front line so they are being pummeled by mortar tanks artillery drones uh, cluster
2: bombs We also heard reports today that Odessa's National Art Museum was damaged by Russian shelling. What does that tell you about where this war is at right now?
11: This is a very alarming signal for me, Neil. Um, I've been here since the beginning of the full-scale invasion, and um, there is a some sort of signs or signals that the Russian military uh, like to use. And I'm afraid, and I hope I'm wrong, uh, that this uh, strike on the UNESCO-protected historical center of Odessa is one of their non-verbal clues. Because a lot of Russian propagandists, and Putin occasionally himself, do claim Odessa to be a Russian city, which of course is not true. Odessa is through and through Ukrainian city by spirit, in heart. uh, And when uh, the Kremlin wants to claim it back, uh, they are a bit in a sci-fi fantasy land. Uh, And as they see that this is not happening, they are getting angrier and angrier and ready to destroy parts of Odessa that they claimed are close to their hearts as well.
2: And it happened on the museum's 124th anniversary.
11: Yes, and this is why I think it might be an alarming sign because of their predilection for the sacral dates. Um, For instance, tomorrow, the 7th of November, which traditionally in the USSR was a holiday celebrating the formation of the Soviet Union, and we we shall see very soon if they decide to commemorate it with any bombardment of um, an important Ukrainian city.
2: The damage to the museum uh, has been condemned by UNESCO. It certainly made headlines internationally because it is part of a World Heritage Site. But as you know, the war in Ukraine is not making headlines as often as it did earlier on. What impact do you think that that might have?
11: Uh, Well, um, it is sad because the general population, the audience, doesn't get to see what's happening on the ground, or they only get highlights of something like mm-hmm. a museum being hit. For instance, in Kherson, a major library was burned to the ground last week, and that was not reflected in by any media anywhere. But Ukrainians are so devastated by what's happening to them now, Neil, that... They are somewhat unaware of the lack of attention mm-hmm. to to the war in the Western media. They actually think that the war is still being covered. It's kind of tragic.
2: Well, I wonder as well, we ha- we've we covered Kherson before throughout this conflict. We know it was occupied for much of last year, recaptured, then partially flooded after the destruction of the nearby dam there. Now you talk about the shelling. When you speak to people there, what are they telling you, the ones who've stayed, about why they've stayed?
11: Uh, yes, and it's a very good question. And I asked really Pretty much anyone whom I meet here, I ask why do they stay? And people have different type of reasons. Two major ones I'd say are logistics because uh, of um, the war that is going on for two years, the occupation, and then as you have mentioned, the flood and the shelling, there are very few jobs. So people simply don't have funds to move. And even the families who leave, tend to come back because here is home and another very strong reason is people say we are invincible we are unbreakable this is our land uh they came here we kicked them out and why should we leave and actually as i speak to you there are explosions um uh, uh, outside right now
2: you sound very calm uh, I know you're a journalist and you're experienced but you sound very calm, Zarina.
11: Uh, but they, they you know, there are three explosions an hour and I've been here for eight weeks, you get used to that.
2: And no sirens to warn you? It's just, it's just ongoing? Uh,
11: there's sirens only going in for um, uh, missiles or drones, but this is artillery mm-hmm. or mortar or tanks. They're too close, so um, air defense can't do anything about it, and uh, it's too fast. So no, the sirens can't come at the time of such explosions.
2: Well, Zarina, thank you. Please stay safe.
11: Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you.
1: Zarina Zabrisky is an American writer and journalist based in Ukraine. We reached her today in Kherson. In its citation for Eleanor Catton's novel *Burnham Wood*, the jury for the one hundred thousand dollars Scotia Bank Giller Prize describes it as a rare gem, an instant classic, and a book about friendship. But if that sounds relaxing to you, you should know they also describe it as quote, "riven with anxiety and rife with online surveillance, income inequality, natural disasters, ecological collapse, and quote, whatever keeps you up at night." It's all of the above. But if that seems contradictory, all you need to know is her tale of a gorilla gardening collective that unexpectedly finds itself on the move will not disappoint. Work by Ms. Catton never does. In fact, her work tends to win superlatives. And in this case, the Ontario-born, New Zealand-raised, England-based author says the honour is especially moving because it means being celebrated as the Canadian author of a Canadian book. Here's Eleanor Catton reading from that novel.
4: One of the reasons that horticulture held such strong appeal for Mira was that it offered her a respite from this habit of relentless interior critique. When she made things grow, she experienced a kind of manifest forgiveness, an abiding, moving on and making new that she found impossible in almost every other sphere of life. Even in her failures and mistakes, as when she learned that onion seeds don't tend to keep, or that low soil temperatures result in carrots that are pale, or that fennel inhibits growth in other plants and should be propagated only on its own, she never felt chastised. For truth in a garden did not take the form of rectitude, and right was not the opposite of wrong. To learn even something as simple as to water the roots of a plant rather than its leaves was not to be dealt the harsh reality of cold hard fact, but rather to be let into a secret. In a garden, expertise was personal and anecdotal. It was allegorical, it was ancient, it had been handed down. One felt that gardeners across the generations were united in a kind of guild and that every council had the quality of wisdom, gentle, patient and holistic, and yet Unwavering, for there was no quarreling with the laws and tendencies of nature. No room for judgment, no dispute. The proof lay only in the plants themselves, and in the soil, and in the air, and in the harvest.
1: Eleanor Catton reading from her Giller-nominated novel Burnham Wood. The winner of the $100,000 prize will be unveiled next Monday, November 13th on CBC TV, CBC Gem, and right here on CBC Radio 1. A drone at every door, windowsill, and balcony, zipping hither and yon with packages for everyone in your neighborhood. Thanks, drone, you say as it delivers your scented candle. You are welcome, human, the drone replies. <laughs> you both laugh and it flies off into the sunset. That was the dream promised by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. In 2013, he said his company would have those drones drones up and soaring in the near future, maybe even by 2015. Well, it's 2023 now, and North American skies are not exactly filled with the buzz of Amazon's drone army, unless you live on the outskirts of College Station, Texas, which is where Leah Silverman lives.
2: Leah, depending on how one looks at it, you're one of the lucky ones, I guess. You're able to get drone deliveries. How do you go about that? If you, if you want an item, what's the process? okay.
7: What happens normally is that we receive an email from Amazon saying, hey, you've got free gifts, Mm -hmm. because um, we don't normally look for um, items ourselves on the site. But we can also go to the site and see what's available for free or see what's available to buy. These days, it's really just the free stuff. Then we order it. It is set for one-day delivery and that it mentions drones specifically. Once it's ordered, we um, get information about when the drone is uh, set to arrive, which is generally within half an hour or an hour. And we have to make sure our son's car is not in the driveway, and we have to put a um, large square that looks like um, it has what seems to be part of a QR code stamped on the front of
2: it. That sounds. Just, um, that's not even all of it. It sounds like, and that already sounds like a lot of work for something that's supposed to be convenient.
7: Yes, it is, it is a fair amount of work. Um, so we, we put that there, then we clear out, and then we wait. Normally, provided it's not too windy, it's not raining, it's not too hot. Um, generally, if it's anything above 31 degrees Celsius or uh, about 91 or so degrees Fahrenheit, um, it's too hot for the drones. During the um, terrible heat wave we got this summer, we uh, couldn't get drone delivery for something like a month. The other day we tried and it was too windy.
2: So what's the success rate like?
7: I would say 60 to 70% of the time maybe. All right. And they will often um, just deliver stuff in a van uh, because the drone distribution center is not that far away. So uh, we'll find out that we're not getting drone delivery, but then somebody in a van drives up and and hands it to us.
2: And are these products free because they're trying to test out, even 10 years on, the drone delivery program?
7: Initially, when we were first told that the drone um, delivery had started in our area, we did buy a couple of things just to see what it was like. So we bought some coffee, uh, like one bag of coffee. I can't remember what else we tried. Um, I don't think it worked, actually. Uh, But then it has lost its um, thrill over time. (laughs) So... We only get stuff when it is A, free, and B, something that we can actually use. So my guess is that they are trying to encourage it in order to keep up with testing and maybe just to get people used to the idea.
2: Your husband likes it, likes the idea, likes this kind it. of delivery, right? He's a technophile,
7: honestly, and um, I think he just finds it really neat. He uh, is the kind of person, like, he loves trains. He just he loves this sort of thing. He's... Um, a specialist in transportation uh, safety is specifically for roadways it's just things getting from one place to another is his jam <laughs> and uh so he he loves it he also loves getting free things and I mean, sure. um, yeah
2: that's pretty universal yeah yeah you know
7: <laughs> yeah exactly and uh unlike me he figures that since the cardboard is ostensibly recyclable it doesn't matter if it comes in a ridiculously oversized box with paper in it and more cardboard in it and um, it doesn't matter how small the item is. The box is always one size. We can only get one item at a time, even if everything is under five pounds. Five pounds is the limit. And, but even then, you're only allowed one item.
2: What would be on your checklist for this to be something you would use regularly? What would they have to ch- do or change?
7: Uh, the ability definitely to have more than one item in these boxes, even if it still had to be under five pounds. Um, the other day I was wistfully thinking if only I could get bananas from Amazon because I wanted to make banana bread and I was out and, uh, they drop things from about 12 feet. So I can understand why they wouldn't want to send bananas like that, but, um, something, you know, more useful things like, uh, over the counter medicines, for example, just the kind of things that you would run out to the grocery store to get at the last minute. They don't have very much of that, if any of it.
2: And that's what would help you. I wonder, you know, when this when we first started talking about having this conversation earlier today with our team, uh, many of us were surprised, surprised that this had come up 10 years ago. That it had been 10 years. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised that 10 years on we're still at this stage in terms of how efficient and effective it is?
7: That's an excellent question. I have to admit I hadn't really thought about it. I um Tend to take the mindset that people think more science fiction than what is actually available and what is actually doable. And um, drone delivery seemed like a really neat idea, but I never really thought, oh, yeah, you know, like in a couple of years it's going to be happening. I just didn't really think about it. And so in that sense, it, it doesn't really surprise me that it's taken them this long. Um, I am surprised that after this long, it's not, it is not better. Um, but, uh, you know, apparently it was not a priority. And just knowing what we needed to do in the area we had to live in to even get it, I can understand what their uh, limitations are and what they're up against. This, this isn't easy for them.
2: Leah, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. My pleasure.
1: Leah Silverman lives in a region where Amazon is testing its drone delivery program. We reached her in College Station, Texas. If you're not a professional follower of the news or a professional repairer of doors and windows, you might be surprised to learn how frequently break-ins are perpetrated by bears. This summer alone, a California bear burst into a man's home and uh, took a nap in his bed. A Colorado bear ate pork chops out of a family's fridge. There's Hank the Tank, the 400-pound bear believed to be responsible for at least 21 home break-ins in Lake Tahoe. And in just the past few weeks, we've had BC bear breaks into vehicle, leaves smelly surprise for owner, bear invades Florida garage, eats vegan ice cream, and three-legged Florida bear raids poolside fridge for cans of White Claw. All of which explain the new saying, you can't spell bear. Without b any, But a woman from Leesburg, Florida has a story that might take the cake about some bears who absolutely would take the cake, if given the chance. Tina Sayers says a group of at least three different bears seem to be taking turns trying to get into her home several times a week. Her husband is frequently prevented from leaving for work in the early morning because the bears are waiting to get to work, robbing them. Nothing seems to deter them. And Ms. Sayers says that despite reporting the encounters to authorities, no one has come to help. Which is terribly frustrating when all you want to do is take a giant pause from giant paws.